there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. TV hit the air with rock and roll video. Today there's VH1, Video Hits 1. Finally, your music has come to television. Hi, I'm Don Imus. We're going to have music from the past, from the present, that you want to hear all day, every day, in digital Dolby stereo. The only one of its kind anyway. Can you see? The first mandatory seatbelt law in America went into effect the same day that VH1 broadcast for the first time. Coincidence? You be the judge. The Internet's domain name system was created, which is why you can tell all your friends and family to visit 80sallover.com now. Ronald Reagan was sworn in for a second term, the 15th space shuttle mission was launched, and Leontine Price gave her final operatic performance in AIDA. Finally, as the month came to a close, Michael Jackson and a super group of celebrities gathered in Los Angeles to record... We are the world! setting the tone for a very weird year ahead in January of 1985. Hi, everybody. I'm Drew McWhinney, and welcome, as always, to 80s All Over. I'm joined by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. What's up, Scott? What is up, buddy? We are ready for a new year, and I'm excited because despite January being a wasteland, this is a a really fun year, and I'm looking forward to the next 11 episodes. It's the most diverse year we've done so far. It's all over the map. Drew, did we forget a British horror film? It is a veritable boner parade this month. Say oops, upside your head. Say oops, upside your head. Say In mentioning the soundtrack to Birdie, as we were talking about it, and the amazing work Peter Gabriel did there, referred to the Passion of the Christ uh, soundtrack, and obviously was referring to The Last Temptation of Christ. Uh, but as Scott and I both know, the soundtrack to that movie is called The Passion, that's the name of the Peter Gabriel album, which is why it's so easy to make that mistake. My apologies to Christ. <laughs> um, also, uh, you made a mention of the first sound editing Oscar being awarded to one of the movies in our last episode. It was actually given for the first time in 1963 to It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. But... Yeah, when I did my research, it had in parenthetical a special Oscar. So me, assuming I'm brilliant made the assumption that, oh, if that was a special Oscar that year, then it must have been the first year. Guess what? I was wrong. I mentioned in the introduction to the last episode that we sat out the 84 Olympics. Of course, that was not the case. This was the summer that we dominated the Olympics, and Russia was the party that sat that one out. I'm so sorry I got that confused, folks. Of course, we kicked ass and took names that year. Feel like you're part of the Olympic action. 
play McDonald's when the U.S. wins, you win Olympic games. What's your event? Women's freestyle relay. If the U.S. wins, then I win. When the U.S. wins a medal in the event on your game card, you win a Big Mac. Or regular fries. Or regular Coca-Cola. Or win up to $10,000 instantly. So go to McDonald's and collect your game cards. Because when the U.S. wins, you win. I got a lot of free McDonald's that year from the 84 Olympics. I did too. I did too. Uh, I can't believe I forgot that. Oh, and then we missed a movie. What was the movie we missed? Someone in the UK decided that the controversy surrounding Silent Night, Deadly Night was something they also wanted. So they slapped something together over the course of two years, which means it actually predates that controversy. A homicidal maniac is loose at Christmas. His target is Santa Claus. His motives baffle Scotland Yard. Without a pattern for murder, no one dressed as Santa Claus is safe. His death toys are a spear, a gun, an open razor, a dagger, or an old-fashioned garage. Execution by any means. Don't open till Christmas. Um, yeah, yeah, this thing was in production for like two and a half years. The director is, is a well-established uh, British actor named Edmund Purdom. He uh, apparently got fired and then came back at the very end. The thing went through horrible production uh, delays. That's easily the most interesting aspect of the film, aside from perhaps the presence of the lovely Carolyn Monroe. This thing is un watchable well carolyn monroe is playing carolyn monroe in like a variety show that they break into and the song she's singing is so awful it is don't open till christmas with special guest star carolyn monroe It is one of those moments where you realize why variety shows died. This thing is a sleeping pill and the identity of the killer is ridiculous. The murders themselves are ridiculous. Even as a junky little slasher film from the UK, snooze. Now let's move on to another film you should never put on your list. It took nine writers, seven (laughs) directors and Richard Mall from Night Court. 73 minutes of absolute anthology nonsense. Dungeon Master, a.k.a. Rage War. He is a warrior in a wasteland without mercy. He has survived where countless others have died. Good shot, huh? He has destroyed all that would kill him. He is the only one who can face the challenges of... The Dungeon Master. Ah, the challenges of Excalibrate. It's Mestima versus Excalibrate. That is the movie. All right, let me see if I can sum it up (laughs) as quickly as possible. (laughs) Mestima sounds like a very embarrassing disease you get in an area you don't want to talk about. Side effects include Excalibrate. A guy who is obsessed with his computer goes to sleep, and he and his girlfriend get abducted by a demon, played by Bull from Night Court, and then Bull from Night Court puts him through a series of very brief anthology segments in which he has to thwart some kind of evil. In one case, it's like leftovers from ghoulies. And in another case, it's literally the rock band Wasp. It's nonsense. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. This movie has Wasp, Albert Einstein, Stop Motion Harryhausen Monsters, and Richard Maul. It's got frozen samurai, zombies, (laughs) leftover ghoulies, uh, cartoon dragons, and... Bull from my court. Did I mention? The thing that I will say about it is, as Empire Pictures go, 
it's moderately watchable, mainly because it does not stop throwing nonsense at you for the entire 80 minutes. It is watchable in the sense that like a, a five-year-old who just had 12 pixie sticks is watchable. I like the Dave Allen segment just because I like the stop motion. And I think the stop motion stuff is actually pretty nice. And for an effects nerd, you can just watch that segment and go, oh, yeah, that's pretty groovy. It is fucking nonsense. But if you happen... <laughs> to have like you know a bong handy and and 73 minutes to kill and you want to like join the club of weird movie nerds who can talk about the dungeon master on twitter then yeah go ahead go nuts i reject your reality and i replace it with my own and why is that line famous it got picked up and turned into a meme and i believe it started on mythbusters I would say, Drew, as far as early Empire Pictures productions, Dungeon Master is at least marginally more watchable than Ghoulies. Oh, yes. And I will roll right in now. Jonathan is having a housewarming party. Wow! Unfortunately, there will be some surprise guests. <laughs> They'll get you in the end. Rated PG-13. What is it everybody knows about Ghoulies? It's the cover. It's the cover of the monster popping out of the toilet. And what is it that you, are having just watched it, are now here to tell those people? There is no monster popping out of a toilet. It is one of those movies that everybody remembers seeing on the shelf. And every time you, I mean, that's kind of what the charm of VHS stores was. Everything got ordered based on how it looked or based on if it was a big hit. So if it wasn't a big hit, you had to have something that we get somebody to order it for the store. And that's why we had the heyday of amazing cover art. And a lot of these VHS covers are flat out lies and I kind of have an, a nostalgia and an affection for the bald-faced thievery of a poster in which nothing appears in the movie. Aside from the creatures, what do you think of this film? Oh, my God. It's terrible. And maybe it's just because I don't find any of it scary or interesting. I'm not a big fan of, we've got a cult and we painted a pentagram. We're going to raise things in the basement. and that whole, that whole thing just does nothing for me. Right. I mean, if it's done by like, the hereditary director, if he does it, I'm interested. If you're in a movie and you move into a house and there are old books written in a language you don't understand there, move out. Just move out right then. Save yourself the trouble because you know what's going to happen. And so do I. This is the debut of what well-known actor? Mariska Hargitay. Yes. Even in this junk, she stands out as like, yeah, this one could be a star. It's also a little wild seeing Jack Nance show up. I dearly love Jack Nance, but boy, his filmography away from David Lynch is not nice. The uh, Empire Pictures breakdown at this point is that Charles Band uh, did uh, Parasite in 82, and then he built Empire and came back with this Dungeon Master uh, and a film called Ghost Warrior, which didn't actually come out until 86. Their best stuff is like Reanimator and Trancers and the first Puppet Master. And they've made some fun schlock, but Dungeon Master and Ghoulies was just kind of them finding their feet. Not a fan of either, sorry to say. Um, we're going to continue in the cheap and crappy realm for a little bit here with our next movie. I tapped out on this one, dude. It's Troma's Rock and Road Trip, and it's all fucking yours. Uh, I got not much to say. It's another fake rock movie. Power. Yeah! Un- 
unlistenable. And as the fake rock goes, this is some of the fakest <laughs> and, and truly painful to sit through. If you're going to make a movie that is all about rock and it's going to be largely just padded with people on stage playing stuff, at the very least, find some songs that don't make me want to pull my own teeth out with my hands. It's awful. But I'll say this as Troma Fair. It didn't make me feel like I was going to throw up the entire time. Equally awful is the little known sequel to The Scared and the Scream. Drew, let's talk about Too Scared to Scream. Wow. That joke works on Twitter. I don't think it works on audio. (laughs) I think this was originally called The Doorman, and it would not surprise me because it's very much a movie about an apartment building where people are being attacked, and there's a creepy doorman who has secrets who maybe is connected to them and maybe not, played by the great Ian McShane. I love this cast. Ian McShane, Ann Archer, Mike Connors, Leon Isaac Kennedy, Murray Hamilton, Maureen O'Hara, and John Hurd. A lot of whom look like they worked for an afternoon. Yep. As a thriller slash horror film, it is a TV movie level. Well, and I get the feeling that one of the ways they got people to be in it is because it's set in an apartment building and he's the only major character that's through the entire thing. You could just have somebody come in and do their like three days and be one of the tenants. And I think that might have been an attractive way for Lobianco to get friends to come and do him favors. I mean, my God, he has Marino Sullivan in the movie. My God. It's junk. Also junk. Moving on quickly. Betsy Russell in Tomboy. She was born a tomboy. But now she's growing up. You're a mechanic. And getting ready for a man's world head on. She's not like the other girls. You want to go up to my apartment for a month? (laughs) She's got the courage, the talent, and the desire to prove it's not just a man's world anymore. Tomboy from Crown International Pictures. This is an interesting movie to me in one regard. It's exploitation, but it's also empowered. It's about a tough girl who's not going to take any shit. But yet it also has scenes of her in the shower bouncing around. (laughs) And we're at that moment where that's kind of starting to happen more. And we'll see it later in the air with just one of the guys where the movies kind of have their heart in the right place. But they know that to get a teenage dude in the theater, they still need to be kind of sleazy. And it's a it's a weird mix of impulses. She's an aspiring race car driver who falls for another race car driver. And then there is a race involved in the end. It is romantic. It is ostensibly funny, but never really funny. It depends largely on how charming you think Betsy Russell is. And we're going to really test that over the next two or three episodes of this show. Drew, what is her character's name in this movie? Thomasina Boyd, a.k.a. Tomboy. (laughs) It's insane. It's an insane choice. But, you know, it's also in keeping with the fact that this movie doesn't have a subtle bone in its body. And it feels like a movie made by a 65-year-old business executive who's trying to make a and and to his credit who's trying to make something that's kind of liberated and progressive for 1985 but he's still a 65 year old dude who's utterly unconnected to anything real so it's an odd little thing you know what else is really odd james spader's bleached eyebrows in the new kids they are brother and sister alone and mac and mom are dead killed in a car crash on their own Without parents, 
without friends. Trying to make it in a new town. From the director of the original Friday the 13th comes a new Ticket to Terror. That's right, Sean S. Cunningham, working from a screenplay by the dad of Jake and Maggie Gyllenhaal. Stephen Gyllenhaal and his wife are both going to have a uh, pretty big presence over the next few years of the show. And Jake and Maggie as sort of A-list or near the A-list, but mom and dad worked in some crazy exploitation stuff and B and C-list stuff for a while. So it's interesting seeing where they came from, man. Lori Laughlin and a really boring guy. Their dad, uh, played by the awesome Tom Atkins, trains them militarily to not take any guff from nobody. But then mom and dad are killed in a car crash and they have to go live with their uncle who has a Santa Claus-themed theme park. Then they run afoul of a quintet of rancid bullies, and the lead bully is James Spader, and each of the other four bullies are very disparately bullyish in that one is really gross, one is really pervy, uh, one is fat. There is zero attempt to do anything except defined by the outside of the way these characters look in this movie, and it's crazy that James Spader is, he looks like somebody went, how do we make him look like a villain? How do we make sure that you know the moment he shows up, he's a villain? It's insane what these bullies get away with. I mean, yes, there's always been bullying. There's always been jerks who get away with dirty stuff. But even in 1985, the amount of shit that these kids get away with would not stand. It just wouldn't. And then eventually it gets to a point where it's attempted rape and they almost set this lovely young girl on fire. Then finally, the big brother and sister fight back. It's Death Wish Jr. It's dopey and it's mean. It's really ugly in a lot of places. It's got... Eric Stoltz uh, is Laurie Laughlin's uh, quiet young boyfriend, and he's it, not bad in it. It feels so indifferent about even like the stuff that you would think if you're making this exploitation film would be your bread and butter, like the big kill scenes or things like that. Nah, nothing feels like he gives a crap. I, Cunningham is at best an indifferent filmmaker. Now let's move on to another B movie. <sighs> Z movie. Z. It's Sandal Bergman off of Conan the Barbarian as she. There's not even sets in this movie. There's a lot of this movie that feels like they threw like <laughs> curtains up and then made it real dark in a room and they went, I don't know, just walk around. Oh, yes. Like, it's fucking unreal. This carpet store looks futuristic. Oh. Um, it, it, you know what I kept thinking throughout this? It's the female uh, equivalent to Yor, the hunter from the future. Yeah, and it's so super low budget. The dude who directed it, Avi Nesher... Had a career before he came to America, had a career after, and this was his, I just arrived from Israel and I'm trying to get my feet in the filmmaking business here. I'm really surprised he worked again. This is barely a movie. It feels like it starts in the middle of a reel and it feels like it just kind of runs out arbitrarily and I don't know what happens to anyone or why. Any connection to the ostensible source material? No, none whatsoever. The source material is jungle goddess and white hunters going into the jungle and, and it's old pulp material. This is set in supposedly the future after an apocalypse and it's kind of, it's so far in the future that it's in our past now and maybe it's the... Uh, so, Drew, we move from the umpteenth post-apocalyptic knockoff to the umpteenth TNA sex comedy with teenagers. It's not Hot Moves. It's not Private Resort. It's Hot Resort. And this one is distinguished, I guess, by starring Bronson Pinchot. 
and Mayquest, still the voice of Betty Boop. Oh, and here's my biggest problem with this. And dude, I'm sorry, but if I'm going to have to sit through a sleazy teen sex comedy again, and I we've still got several more to go, please don't make it be one that stars Dan Schneider. Why is the fat slob character so mean? Well, and Dan Schneider is an actual disgusting human being. When we talk about these movies making us uncomfortable, this one was really hard to sit through for me. I really did not enjoy any part of this. It's racist, and it's racist even for 1985. It's also gross to see Frank Gorshin in it, frankly. And the lovable Steven Stucker from Airplane. It does feel like, for most of the movie, one of the primary threats is that Frank Gorshin is going to have sex with somebody. And it could be anybody, which is very upsetting. Whatever, dude. I We checked Hot Resort off the list. Fuck this garbage. And you know what? Every one of these TNA comedies that we get through is one less we have to deal with. Okay, so now, before we get into this, how much experience did you have with this film before this episode? Honest to God, I saw this film off of VHS when I was 15 or 16. I was Vestron. It had the yellow cover, Tawny Katane, and Brett Huff in the French softcore action-adventure bondage non-masterpiece the Perils of Gwendolyn in the Land of the Yik Yak. From Thieves Harbor, Singapore, to the corrupt casinos of Macau, journey to a lost civilization with a reluctant hero. Get out of my way, you're not my type. And a lady who loves to be rescued. Destiny throws them together. Again. Willard! And again. Come on, scream! More. Come on, you scream! More. More again. And again. <laughs> the Perils of Gwendolyn in the Lost, Lost Land of the Yik Yak. Directed by our friend Just Yakin. Just Jakin who recently directed Lady Chatterley's Lover, and uh, after this, promptly, I guess, gave up on ever being a real filmmaker ever again. Uh, was this a film that you, uh, say, 17 or 18, rented solely for prurient purposes? No, and actually, the way I became aware of this film was because of, I believe it was Fantastic Films Magazine. They did an actual set visit for this before it came out, and they had a big spread for the movie, and they had a ton of photos of like the set design and everything else, and really downplayed the fact that it was a crazy TNA movie. So when it came out, I did not know what it was. Well, why would you? I mean, why would a 17-year-old American boy know that there is such a thing as French bondage comic strip now being adapted into a major feature film? At one point, this was the most expensive French film production ever. Yeah, yeah. Well, somebody should have said what the fuck it was because I took my mother to the theater. Oh, wow. wow. This was a nightmare. This was maybe one of the worst theatrical experiences I've ever had. Uh, all right, picture this. You're watching Raiders of the Lost Ark, and while they're in the boat together, and she's, like, um, tending to his wounds, and they're being flirty and sexy together, he starts telling her about the female orgasm, and she has a climax while they're sitting on the bed together. That's, that's literally what happens in this movie. It's insane! Now, here's what I find crazier. The sex stuff, you know, yes, Yakin directed Emmanuel. He was known for this. That's kind of what he made his reputation on. Clearly, the two major influences, aside from the bondage comics that went into this, are Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I would argue strongly, the Hong Kong film industry at the time. 
My guess is that Just Yakin, being a guy who did a lot of international financing and lived in both Hong Kong and France, probably saw a lot of the early Jackie Chan in Hong Kong movies. You look at the set design in the first third of this film, you look at the set design in the whole thing, but especially in the first third when they're in the city and they're going through stuff, it looks like Project A, it looks like all those Hong Kong films, it's the same kind of sort of scale and budget and set work. It's a surprisingly well-designed film. And then it erupts into a bondage film (laughs) where you go, oh, wait a minute. It feels like this weird attempt at dropping porn into the middle of what was popular at the time. There's several different cuts of this. The version that exists right now primarily uh, is a re-edited, longer European version, and that's on Blu-ray and is out there and available, and I believe Severn Films put it out. It is one of the weirder films that we have encountered so far because so much of it works at what it's trying to do. It's just that its ambitions are nuts. Yeah, I definitely recommend it, not as necessarily a good film, but as a what-the-fuck curiosity that you probably haven't seen and not to be watched with your children. Now it's time for Return of... (laughs) Yes, please don't do that. True, it's time for a second starring role for Betsy Russell this month. It's a sequel. Donna Wilkes did not return to play The Avenging Angel. Her name is Angel. Four years ago, she made a promise to stay off the streets. Now, she's back. With a vengeance. You were doing a job I wouldn't have to. And this time, the lady means business. Avenging Angel. When you get to hell, tell him an angel sent you. Her all-new Hollywood adventure, rated R. It's weird because in many ways this is very much a sequel and it depends on your affection for the supporting cast of the original film. If you really loved Rory Calhoun as Kit the Cowboy, hot damn, you were in for it in Avenging Angel. Oh, wait, wait. What about Stephen Porter as yo-yo throwing guy? (laughs) They should have made this a franchise. There should have been 50 of these, man. Yeah. And to its credit, this one does also add Ossie Davis as a cop. Uh, Angel has moved or Molly has moved on and she's uh, she's becoming a lawyer and she's getting ready to start her new life. And then the cop that helped her in the first film is murdered and she has no choice but to go to the streets and put on her tights and find the guy that did it. It's wackier than the first film in a lot of ways. It's way more elaborate than the first film. Yep, and it feels like the first one was kind of going for that, like, a little sleaze. And this one went, all right, that one was a little bit sleazier. This one's more fun, but brutal. Again, you want to talk about a movie that you remember from the poster art or from the key art. High School Student by Day, Hollywood Hooker by Night. That was one of those posters that, of course, jumped out. This one doesn't have the cleanness of that hook. It's not as easy to... Sum up. Yeah, it's like, what's it about? Former prostitute <laughs> kills murderer. Yeah, it's uh, it, it was easy the first time. Uh, this one's just a lot of legwork to even get her back on the streets. And then, yeah, it's kind of perfunctory and strange. And I go to this well a lot, and this is clearly not the case. But if somebody had said... Well, Avenging Angel was them was like their TV pilot. They wanted to turn Angel into like a, a TV series. It, it's fun junk, I guess. Not great. Drew, let's move on to something. There's no segue. There are films that are uh, powerful that will punch you in the gut and make you curl up on your couch in the fetal position while your cat just sniffs at your hand like, what's wrong? What's wrong? The cat seems to say, what? Did you just watch The Plague Dogs? Did you have to call a hotline after you watched this? Before watching the film, I assumed it was like strictly 
PETA-style anti-vivisectionist propaganda. It's anti-vivisection the way any war movie is anti-war, in that just showing this world should make you <laughs> ferociously against it. I mean, it's... I, like a lot of people out there, often struggle with depression and anxiety, and there are certain things that can trigger you at a certain moment. And I, I found it very difficult to find the proper night where I felt prepared to watch Plague Dogs. And I want to warn our viewers that this is a very powerful and worthwhile film, but it is heartbreaking. Well, Richard Adams is, I would say he's an emotional terrorist as a writer. Watership Down is one of those experiences that for a lot of kids is very defining and traumatic. And it was defining and traumatic when I read it. And I never read The Plague Dogs, but I ran into that film back in the 80s. And uh, again, defining and traumatic. <laughs> when Disney does the anthropomorphization of animals, when they you know make them have, you know, personalities and talk and all this stuff. It's done in a way that is not about illuminating the animal's actual experience. It's more about doing the human experience in the form of these animals and telling human stories. Yeah, it never really does delve into what animals, an animal's life would be like. That's exactly. what Richard Adams was obsessed with. They are dependent on that point of view of man is a real threat and man is a terrifying force. And there's a sequence in this movie where they're just getting out of the lab. Just getting out of the lab is one of the most emotionally difficult things I've sat through in a long time. Yeah, plot-wise, it's basically just about two test lab dogs that escape from their lab and try and, you know, make their way through the world. They're confused about uh, their role in the world. Are they pets? Are they, uh, they, do people want them? Do people not want them? Are they, are they enemies? Should they run? It has some violent moments. It has some truly sad moments. Well, the, uh, the two main characters, Ralph and Sinner, when we meet them, they are in a lab. And one of them has had his brain experimented on and has a thing that's been stuck into it and is shaved, and that's awful. And the other one, the movie opens with him being drowned for like the 10th time. And that's what they do to him. They drown him and resuscitate him. And that's happened over and over. So this movie opens with the drowning of an animal who's our lead character. Imagine the type of sustained anger that you have to have to not only write this, but animate it. I admire it. And at the same time, I think this movie goes so far that it becomes an endurance test for anybody. It's not even about what if a kid accidentally saw the plague dogs. Uh, first of all, the answer to that question is it's the end of the world. The reason is because these scenes don't just – it's not just about the accumulated cruelty or difficulty of this life. He gets to the point where this one dog character finally finds a human being who is kind. And we have seen example after example of how that is a impossible dream. And finally the dog finds somebody and the guy finds the dog and, oh, my gosh, you're a good, you're a good dog. And, oh, my gosh, you're a good person. And here, let me pet you, doggy. Let me just set the shotgun down. Oh, I'm so excited. Happy master. Oh, accidentally while I jump up, let me put my finger on the trigger and blow your head off. It might not even be the darkest thing in the film. And David Cronenberg would have second thoughts about including that in a movie. It's such a move against an audience. I think it, thematically, it's also very interesting movie about how abuse destroys trust, about how if you are abused by somebody over and over, that it may make you completely immune to kindness down the road. And that is not your fault. 100%. These animals are broken. There's, there's never a chance that they're going to be okay. The things that have been done to them and the accumulated damage is profound. 
we have to talk for just a second. We have talked many, many times about how brilliant the late John Hurt is, but his voice work in this broke my um, and if you're curious about this film, uh, it's been on and off video for a while, but uh, our good friends over at Shout Factory just put it out on Blu-ray. So let's move on to another film in which James Spader and bullies fight. He's new in town and nothing belongs to him. Not the music. Where's he from? Not the school. Whoa. Not the girl. Things you don't understand. Then enlighten me. Ever catch you near Frankie again? Take you out so fast. To get what he wants. Morgan Hill is going to take this town apart. Tough turf. Rated R. Now playing. Check local listings. Can you imagine the whiplash of having seen both Tough Turf and the new kids back to back in theaters? It is kind of a, a, like a, a B side to the new <laughs> it's, kids. It's, a, it's bullying garbage, and this time it's got Spader as the good guy. I'll, I'll say this: the new kids at least has a better villain than Tough Turf does. Has a better villain in the form of James Spader, but I like more of the cast of this one. I think, including, and I'm a big fan of. Anytime we get gap tooth weirdo Robert Downey Jr., this is still when he is just a sweaty mutant who shows up as the best friend who is probably going to steal something out of your house while your parents aren't home. And I love him. I, I love the scene where he drums in this movie. It's it completely extemporaneous. And I love that they did it. And I love that he's terrible. And I, it's great. Uh, one of the things I love about this film is I think it has a terrific soundtrack and a lot of it is live. A lot of it is played in the film. A lot of it is, I think unique to the movie and you know, we're talking about earlier rock and road trip and how frustrating it is when your film depends on so much music to just have garbage that nobody's ever going to want to listen to, including the people making the film. If you were looking at the marketing of this movie, you'd think it's purely a new guy versus the bullies movie, but that's like maybe a third of it. The rest of it is just like weird diversions of them hanging out. They go on this random road trip to a country club, which might be the best part in the movie. Drew, was this? I honestly feel like this movie was a musical at one point. It feels like that. It sort of almost is because of how much of it is, like I said, played live in the film. And to actually have the band, Jack Mack and the Heart Attack, show up over and over, I like them. I like their presence. I think it gives the film kind of a, a rumble and a, a heft to it. Tough Turf, more than a lot of these, feels like a world that I enjoyed spending time in as a teenager. Like all these movies, you get the same thing, which is it's all about, I don't fit man. And Oh, maybe the right girl's going to understand me and bullies trying to keep me down. And James Spader in this one arrives from somewhere else. He's got a little bit of money. So he kind of sticks out. That's the reason he becomes an instant target to his credit. His eyebrows look normal in this one. And he has all the stuff that he already is into and that he loves. So when he shows up in town, he's already pretty confident as to who he is. I like, the world that we kind of are introduced to. I get it. I think James Spader kind of does have good taste and is having fun as a teenager. And he seems cool in this movie. He seems really relaxed about, Hey man, I'm a new kid in town. And this is the, Oh, I got to fight a bully. Fuck. All right, here we go. And he just deals with it. Our female lead is Kim Richards hot off meatballs too. Uh, who I, you know, part of the appeal of Kim Richards in the eighties was the same thing that was interesting about Kurt Russell at this point, former Disney kid as they break completely loose from that Disney image. And in every case, it was interesting for people that had grown up on those movies to see those jumps being made. It has a crazy final brawl, and it's definitely watchable. I don't know if it's any good, but I, did, I wasn't bored watching Tough 
turf. And if you're looking for it, they misspell tough. Drew, what is the opposite of singing? That's dancing. (laughs) Is singing the opposite of dancing? I don't think it is. The style. The moves. The heart. The beat. The soul. The heat. That's dancing. This is the unofficial fourth chapter in the MGM set, which included That's Entertainment, That's Entertainment Part 2, and that continues to be entertainment for a third time. They're all just basic compilations of MGM raiding their vaults and picking the best dance and musical numbers and putting them in films. And for for that audience, that's pretty good. It's got a, a central focus on... Busby Berkeley at the beginning, and Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, Ray Bolger, the Nicholas Brothers, uh, Sid Charisse, and then Mikhail Bershnikov comes in and talks about some ballet. It's a perfectly serviceable introduction to, uh, you know, the art of dance in film. I enjoyed it, and I forgot about it an hour later. Yeah, it's fine. It's a little weird and dated in a way that the That's Entertainment films weren't, and I think it's because of when it was made. It feels like it's trying to be timely and hip to 1985, which makes it feel way more dated than if they'd just done the stuff about film history, especially at the end when Gene Kelly comes on and sort of begrudgingly introduces Michael Jackson for a few minutes. Gene Kelly in general in this movie, little grumpy, little on the grumpy side. And uh, it's an interesting historical footnote is this was the first time that some of the uh, deleted footage from The Wizard of Oz had ever been seen, which, you know, you can see on YouTube now, but... Yeah, it's the much longer if I only had a brain number, and... I still think they should have kept that, but cut it when they start the reversal. That reverse photography stuff is really clunky, but I, I love that dance sequence. I think it's well, great. Bolger moving in general, and look, that's ultimately, that's one of the things that I, I will say about a movie like this, that this has going over the Bugs Bunny compilation films that we've talked about, is... When this settles down and lets a whole scene play out and lets an entire dance sequence play out, how can you argue with that? Watching the Nicholas Brothers sequence, for example, the Nicholas Brothers are just plain amazing. Every single second of them dancing, electric and phenomenal. I I, uh, fell in love with Sid Charisse in this film because I knew she was one of Fred Astaire's, uh, not Ginger Rogers, but one of his other better known uh, partner, dance partners. It's her work with Kelly that's always blown me away. Uh, in particular, I love uh, American in Paris. And the tributes to the individual performers are very heartfelt and I think very affectionate in this movie. I, I enjoyed it. It's the terror in the aisles of dancing. Now, Drew, let's move on to an early Amblin production. Although, does Spielberg have a uh, producer credit? Uh, he is executive producer or, yeah, he's got his name somewhere on it. All right. It's an early film from frequent Kevin Costner collaborator. Let us discuss... Fandango. Join five best friends on the road. Are you crazy? Are you out of your mind? It'll work, Philip. It's a once-in-a-lifetime adventure. It's dust, by God! Dust and privileges are you! Where some will graduate into manhood. I'm not a weenie. And others will dive in headfirst. Fandango. I can see why Steven Spielberg would be very flattered by this film, because I think Kevin Reynolds has a real Spielberg thing going on in a few scenes. 
But let's start at the beginning. It's uh, 1971, and uh, uh, four friends are about to uh, graduate from college and uh, go into the military, and they decide to uh, relive their glory days by going on a road trip to retrieve somebody named Dom. And we don't know who that is, but we will find out later in the film. Kevin Costner, Judd Nelson, Sam Robards, a big silent guy who reads a book, and one guy who's literally sleeping the whole time. So ostensibly, it's just Kevin Costner, Judd Nelson, and and Sam Robards. It's a little shaggy around the edges, a little bit formless, but it does have some energy. It doesn't wear out its welcome. It does have some funny bits, and it clearly does come from a sincere place. Uh, Even though I don't buy that everything in the film happened, I do believe that it was written with some, some honesty and sincerity. I don't buy the relationship between Costner and Nelson and Robards. It looks like they met the day before they started shooting. Yeah, that's a fair point. I don't, they have a fight about two thirds of the way through the film that like, if you and I had that argument, it would be weeks before we could like talk. You don't get in a car right after the film. The film has some real modulation problems, but I agree with you that, and here's where I think Spielberg probably responded to Reynolds in the specific way. He shoots the big set pieces And there's that one where they're trying to start the car and he gets the idea of we'll just put a hook on the car and then we'll just throw a hook on the train and it'll pull us. And the build up to that and the staging of that and the guy walking across between the two and the and the timing of very close encounters. Boy, is that Spielberg. I think the plane sequence is the same way where they're up in a plane and they've talked Judd Nelson into skydiving and they realize he's got the wrong parachute. And that whole thing has this great sort of energy. I also really love and we I think we talked with uh, E.G. Daly about it when she was here. The scene in the graveyard where they all play with the fireworks and they have the little firework war. It's really beautiful. That's a it's a kind of a, a lovely moment. So. Reynolds has his chops, but what he can't do is he can't convince me that these three guys are friends at all. Like, I don't believe that the three of them would ever hang out. And I don't there's no urgency to what is coming, which is the Vietnam War. And there's a lot of films we've seen that use. I've got my draft notice and I've got to go and I'm getting this is my last thing. There's a number of films that are hooked it's on stuck that. in my craw a little bit. These guys are acting like they haven't watched the news. This is 1971. This is not 1968. I know. It's late. It's late for them to be kind of dicking around if Vietnam is literally right. Man, the tone's not right here. And if this was the best film released this month, it would be, you know, it'd be okay. It would be an, uh, it's it's an all right. There's a reason it's a footnote on Reynolds' career. It barely got released. There was a lot of troubles getting it in theaters. And The supporting cast is fun. You see Susie Amos pop up, the great Glenn Headley. And I want to make note of this actor every time he pops up in something, the guy who plays the pilot. Marvin J. McIntyre. Marvin J. McIntyre. Most of our listeners will know him as the skinny one from The Running Man. He's so great. He is so great in this. He's a strange-looking guy, okay? And he knows how to work it for comedic effect. He's absolutely fantastic in this role. Kevin Reynolds and Kevin Costner would, of course, go on to work together on uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Accents, and Waterworld. And he's good in this, but... One of the reasons I think Reynolds uh, pulls off what he pulls off in this movie is he's working with Thomas Del Ruth, the photographer who we'll talk about again repeatedly because of films like Breakfast Club and Stand By Me, and of course, as you just mentioned, The Running Man. Uh, And it is worth mentioning that while I would call Fandango a decent miss, but, you know, definitely watchable, it definitely does have a small but loyal cult following out there. You'll, you'll be surprised that this movie you've barely heard of uh, has people who have, in years past, gone on road trips to the landmarks in the film. Now, Scott, I said if this was the best film released this month, that would be fine. It would be, like, understandable for January, but it's not. Up till this point, 
We had what? Fandango, which is decent. That's Dancing, which is a, you know, a decent compilation movie. And 18 miles of pure cinematic torture. And Drew, what did we get in return? What is our dessert? What is our reward for making it through January of 1985? Why'd you take these? What do you mean? Just do them a job, call it a fringe benefit. How long are you watching? Most of nine. They'd rest every few minutes and get started again. Quite some. I got a job for you. It's a reference to that gentleman or my wife. The more I think about it, the more irritated I get. Huh? Hell you can Blood simple. Oh my god, sometimes you just know. In one of the worst cinematic months we've ever covered. Who arrives? The first film, the debut, a glimmer, a beacon of indie brilliance, a four-character noir in which every character screws each other over at least five times, <laughs> and, you, and, and you could watch it nine more times in a row. It's, the dialogue is like a steak you could sink your teeth into. The performances are amazing. Barry Sonnenfeld's camera work is immediately iconic. Obviously, we can now have the, the uh, benefit of perspective looking back over many great Coen Brothers films. While I don't think I would even put Blood Simple in my top five or even in my top ten, man, I will tell you, revisiting this film, because I remembered very little of it, was such a joy. It was such a delight. It was like opening a book that I had read five chapters of 25 years ago and then just savoring how beautiful that book is. They arrived fully formed. That's what's crazy about this movie is the the Coens are 100 percent now when you look at the, the work they're doing, more muscular, more polished. They, they are artists who are working at a level that is really unparalleled. The confidence of first time directors. This movie does not feel like a first timers film. While they have all those technical skills now, all the ideas were in place then. And it's so clearly a case of somebody who speaks film as a language. And I love that it's very small. The wonderful Dan Hedaya plays a sleazy bar owner whose wife, the brilliant Frances McDormand, is sleeping with uh, the awesome John Getz. And then uh, Dan Hedaya hires M. Emmett Walsh. And not only are they all brilliant, but the scenes where they're playing off each other, it's like watching singers try to top each other or watching guitar players try to riff off each other. It is wonderful. Francis McDormand at this point is an institution. We're used to Francis McDormand being brilliant. So you don't kind of register how good she really is or how startling she was when she arrived because you understand why every guy in this movie is driven a little nuts by her. And it's got nothing to do with anything on the outside. It is 100% about just how she is in every scene. And that's Frances McDormand playing that character and bringing it to life. And gets is as good as I think he's ever been in all of his scenes with her. The two of them together, they are so delighted with one another over the course of this thing until it goes south. And then watching it curdle and watching everybody get afraid of each other. You know what? It's the idea of not just writing good dialogue and a good story. 
it's having those holes in the dialogue and those little holes in the story of he picks up the phone and it's Hidea who knows that he's, be, he's sleeping with his wife. And it's like you as the audience are wondering, well, why doesn't he say, fuck you, dude? Why doesn't he respond, get out of here, I'm going to have you. Like there's a history there. We don't know all the tidbits. We don't know all the facts yet. For me, the the thing that I carried with me after I saw this film, and it's weird because I saw Blood Simple and then kind of forgot that I was in love with the Coen brothers. Like I went, oh, wow, that's really cool. Didn't think about them again. Went and saw Raising Arizona and that cemented it. Oh, these guys are insane. I get it now. But the thing that stuck with me after that first viewing is that final sequence with the windows. And there's something about the geography of it and the staging of it. I don't know if it all totally works, but it's immediately awesome. Like you never forget it after you've seen it. That was their first and it was brilliant. It wasn't even like a stumble out of the gate. It was brilliant out of the gate, but it's not really part of the conversation anymore. It should be. It's eminently watchable. If if you love the Coens, but for some reason have never dug back this far, do yourself a favor it's what, 91 minutes all told? It is a movie that, like you said, it, 100% in love with the precedent of film noir and sort of the history of film noir. But the language that Barry Sonnenfeld uses, and for him as a debut photographer, he is as ambitious here as they are. There's stuff that he's trying, including those push-in tracking shots that uh, you know he used later with them again and that I think he has sort of – made his signature over time. Uh, there is so much that is that feels like, okay, we may never get to do this again. We're going to try everything on this time. We're going to uh, throw all of our energy at this. And so by keeping it so lean and mean and by just focusing on these four characters, they were allowed to really flex their muscles in every other way. And so it does feel super controlled. It does feel already like they know how to make a world that they're 100% in control of everything in the frame and every part of that frame. And for first-time filmmakers, that is a skill set that's very rarely already in place. I just love that we are done January of 1985. Welcome, Coen Brothers. You could not arrive at a better time. And we also want to thank every listener, every patron. If you like what you hear, we have bonus episodes on alternating weeks. And if you want to hear those, you go to patreon.com slash 80s all over and you subscribe $5 a month and you get all those bonus episodes. We uh, have an interview with Kevin Murphy coming up. We just interviewed Diane Franklin and EG Daly. We're going to be doing some more commentaries and stuff on the road and uh, thank you to everyone who supports us at present next time tim hutton and sean penn come up with a foolproof business plan sydney potier rounds up a bunch of kids who just have to dance matthew modine takes it to the mat and wait a minute there are two tim hutton movies is that a clerical error all of that plus one of harrison ford's greatest roles one of jeff goldblum's greatest roles and a film that a generation took as sacred text holy crap that sounds like a great february 1985 <laughs>